Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. Hi, I'm Rebecca Gifford. I'm Larry's partner in Parkinson's and in life. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. This season, we featured several authors of books about or inspired by Parkinson's disease. This episode, we talk to the inspiring author of the book, On Fire. John O'Leary. This man is 46 years old. He has a wife, four kids. 36 years ago, he was expected to die. Now he's teaching others how to live inspired lives, even when confronting overwhelming challenges. We first met John as guests on his podcast, Live Inspired. He has also written two New York Times national best-selling books, On Fire and In Awe. He is an in-demand international speaker and someone who intimately understands the impact that Parkinson's can have on a family. We're thrilled to have him on the pod. And fair warning, you may need some tissues. You're going to need some tissues. John O'Leary, welcome to the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast. It is an honor to be with both of you on our show, in particular after I had you both on mine. It was a lot of fun to be on your podcast. Very much so. Thanks for being here. Honored. Thank you. So, John, the work you do today stems from your own epic story of survival. What happened when you were nine years old? Mm. Well, a lot, but I I think the exact moment you're looking for, on January 17th, 1987, at about 7.30 in the morning, I walked into my mom and dad's garage, lit a piece of cardboard on fire, walked over to a five-gallon can of gasoline, And the plan was to pour a little bit of gasoline on top of the flame to just see what might happen. I'd seen some little boys playing with fire and gasoline about a week earlier. And I assumed if they could do it, so could I. So with mom and dad both gone, the house was mine. I began to pour. And before the liquid even came out, the fumes came out of the can. It created this huge explosion, split the can in two, picked me up and ultimately launched me 20 feet against the far side of the garage, setting my world on fire. And we'll unpack the story, I'm sure, but it was an inflection point, certainly, not only in my life, but in the life of my families. Now, on your website, johnolearyinspires.com, I came across some pictures of you on a blue stretcher wrapped in gauze, the melted red gas can with a yellow spout, and the charred garage after the fire, which were taken the day of that inflection point. How much of that do you remember? I, I presume you passed out at some point. You know, what's so in my, I was about going to use the word like awesome. So it's a weird word, but here it comes. What's so awesome is that did not happen. Not until after even time in the emergency room. Oddly enough, you and I are recording this on a, what day is it? Tuesday. On Saturday night, I went to dinner with my sister, which I love her. And we see each other all the time, but not all the time where we're really honest, just as adults. And so she uh, took a big swig of her wine and she said to me, John, do you, do you remember that morning? And I'm like, well, which, which one, Laura? And she goes, the, the morning you were bo- burned, you remember that, like in the detail, I'm like, Laura, every bit of it. So she and I just had a really great conversation Saturday night talking about the moments and the moments that followed the moment. So um, I'll give you a few of the mo- few more moments. And if you want to ask clarifying questions around any of them, feel free. But I, I, I found myself on the far side of the garage Everything around me was a flame. I looked down and saw the flames leaping off of me. And when you're little, you're taught to stop and drop and roll. But what are you supposed to do when you're actually the one on fire and everything around you is already a flame? So like my little mind, I, I wasn't sure what to do. So I just ran. I, just, I ran on fire through the flames 
came into my house, ran through the kitchen and the family room into the front hall, stood on top of a rug, screaming for a savior, praying for a hero. I see my brother Jim racing toward me. And Jim was my older brother. You know, I'm from a big Midwest family, six kids. Jim's 17, I'm nine. He had never been nice to me in my entire life. <laughs> family. He'd never been nice once. So that day on top of the rug, I'm thinking, God, anybody else, not, not him, please. I'm praying <laughs> for a savior, like a hero, like a firefighter. But he's the one, you know, like he's the one. And that day, what Jim does is he races past me, picks up a little throw rug, begins beating me with the rug, back and forth, back and forth, swinging down into the flames. I don't know what he's really trying to accomplish, but eventually he picks me up in the rug, wraps me in it, carries me outside, throws me on the ground, saves my life. Then, as if he's not already done enough, he goes back into the house calls 911, chases my sisters out, chases our golden retriever outside, checks every single room, every single closet to make sure everybody's out. So awesome. It's so, at that point, so unlike him to be that selfless, that sacrificial, that willing to lay down his life for somebody else. And that's what he does. 1987, the lifesaver of the year for the state of Missouri was not a first responder or a veteran. It was a 17-year-old. Who changed and like what a gift in life that like in spite of what is dealt our way and you guys are exhibit a of this in spite of what we signed up for and the cards we are dealt we get to determine what we do with it and that day jim chose well how did your parents respond the amazing thing is my dad's at work and he gets the call at the house there's been a house fire but no details so he goes home first and then he recognizes this isn't like a a kitchen fire it's not a pan this is a collapse. The house is completely aflame. The siblings who were supposed to be at home were all at the neighbor's house, except for little John. And all the news my, my dad has received at that point is John got burned a little. So with that bit of news, he goes to the hospital and, you know, I, from first person, I hear my dad saying, where is my boy, John? <laughs> I'm not, I burned down the house. I'm thinking, uh, I think the old man's come to finish me off. <laughs> so uh, this nurse does me no favor. She brings my dad back into the room. She should have called security. He pulls back the curtain. He loses his breath. It's a hundred percent burn. Like he loses his breath and he steps forward. You know, like he could have gone a million different directions, but my wonderful dad steps forward. He walks over to me. He points down and then he says, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. So I look up at my dad and then he adds, I have never, I've never been so proud of anyone in my entire life. And my little buddy today, this morning, I'm just proud to be your dad. And then he adds, I love you. I love you. I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. And as a nine-year-old little kid, troublemaking kid from Missouri, I crossed my arms, shut my eyes, and I remember thinking, nobody told my dad what happened. <laughs> you know, I couldn't clearly. <laughs> you know, I, I burned down the house. I caused this. I inflicted this on myself. And yet, as you both would know from your own life stories, of course he knew. 
And of course, that day he stepped forward, not only courageously, but gracefully and with love and forgiveness. And I, I think it changed it changed every single interaction that took place in the emergency room and in the burn center room and in the OR and in every single room that came after that. That the, the ability my dad had that day on day one to show up with grace, uh, it changed me. And my mom walked in similarly and she just told me she loved me. And I asked her, mom, am I going to die? And she said back to me, do you want to? Do you want to die? It's your choice, not mine. And I said to her, mom, I don't want to die. I, I want to live. And her response was good. Then John, fight like you never fought before. Take the hand of God and walk the journey with him. You won't be alone. Your father and I will be with you. But do your part. I'll never forget that. John, do your part. Fight. And so then on day one, having no clue what a bandage change was or amputations might feel like or, you know, everything else is going to come. Skin grafts, man, the works. What I did know of what was going to come was this. The fight was on. We already we determined the outcome before the doctor showed up for the visit. The fight was on. And I credit not my own courage or resolve for that. But my brother's sacrifice, my sister's love in the morning I was burned, they did some amazing things. And then my parents' willingness and desire and courage to show up non-judgmentally embracing what had happened and challenging me to determine what's going to happen next. What did they say to your siblings? When I was in the front yard, still recovering, still smoldering. I mean, like, really, it's a, it's a mess out there. The house is on fire. I'm naked. My clothes have been burnt off and my skin has been burnt off. It's a very dramatic situation. My two sisters come out of this burning house chased by my brother. So the house is burning behind them. Their brother is burned in front of them. And one of them comes over to me. She's just an amazing healer. Amy comes over to me. She puts her arms around me and she says, John, it's okay. Have faith and fight. The best is yet to come. That's pretty good language for an 11-year-old. And I remember kind of trying to push her off and telling her that she's wrong. And, and then I look up and I see the house aflame. And like all this pain that I've caused, I see it's my fault. And there's no real path forward for me. So I say to her, and I hate sharing the story, but it's part of the story. So here it comes. I say to her, Amy, it's not okay. Do me a favor. Go back into the house. Get me a knife. Get it from the kitchen. Come back out here and kill me. Because oh. this time it's not all right. And then my little sister, my older sister, Amy says to me, beautiful language. Here it comes. John, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? Have faith and fight the best is yet to come. And overhearing this is the other sister who's home. Her name is Susan. Very mischievous, dark hair, cut up high by the ears. Face is already kind of darkened with soot. This little girl turns from the conversation and she runs back into the burning house. This little seven-year-old girl comes racing back outside. Her skin now even more dark with soot tears coming down her cheeks. And then she pauses like panting for a moment. And then she throws a cup of water right into my face. She goes back and gets a second. And then she goes back and gets a third. And each time returns safely for cups of water, throwing them directly into my face. So 
you asked me the question, what did my mom and dad say to them? Thank you. Was the very first thing they said, which is such great language, right? Because how infrequently do we hear it? Caregivers out there and people in, dealing with, with diagnosis out there and kids and sons and daughters and list, like nurses, all of us, man. How rare we hear these beautiful words sincerely shared. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Then they heard uh, the words, I love you. Then they heard the words, we got to keep praying. We got to pray for this little boy to get better. So, uh, I mean, th 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 that was some of the language that mom and dad shared with these siblings of mine that day. But it began with not only what they did, but recognizing the courage of it all. And then the beautiful words. Thank you. Thank you. What an amazing family. And these words of wisdom kind of pouring from these young souls in this critical moment when it would be so easy to just kind of stay in survival mode and panic or run. And instead they were able to kind of stay present and to help you and get you through these critical moments immediately following the, the fire. And so you mentioned beautifully, I said, all the wisdom these little ones are sharing in day one, that's exactly true. And they were there in day two and day three, and then the PTs and the OTs and the like, people just kept showing up and doing the, the perfect next thing that allowed that little boy got burned so terribly as well as his parent as his parents and his siblings to continue the journey toward recovery. And how long was your recovery? You know, as you know, through your diagnosis, it, it continues 36 years. It continues. I still wake up with burns and pain every day of my life. But the, the actual question you're asking is, you know, how long were you in hospital? Uh, for me, five and a half months in hospital dozens of surgeries and skin grafts, years afterwards of therapy and additional like releases and surgeries and plastic surgery and a lifetime of some challenges, no doubt. And baby steps forward, what my mom and dad set up for me when I was able to eventually uh, begin recovery and, and begin healing in hospital and, and opening my eyes and seeing them and then understanding them and then eventually even speaking with them. All that took a long time. But as we progress forward together, they set it up as a mountain climber climbing to a peak. And so they said, John, we're climbing this thing together. And the first peak we had to a summit was going home with this wonderful dream of, gosh, can you imagine what it's going to be like to go home? How cool will that be? We're going to rebuild a house and we're going to get the, the dinner table set up again. And we'll make your favorite meal. That's going to be awesome. And so we had this big date set up of going home as a family. And then as a family, we lived into it five and a half months later. And then we realized that same night that I came home, I can't hold a fork. So then there was another dream of, well, gosh, we got to have a new goal, a holding a fork. And then a goal of one day walking again, and then one day going back to school again, and then one day graduating, and then one day getting a job, one day finding love first in yourself, and then maybe even having that love reciprocated by somebody else. So the, the dreams kept changing the aspirational goals in life kept changing, but the baby steps and the courage to walk toward them together never did. And those continue to advance us today together. Mm -hmm. How did the fire and recovery affect your relationship with your parents? Well, gosh, it drew us in. I think tragedy either repulses you from people in life. It, it probably makes you more of who you are ultimately. And I was so fortunate at that point in my life, nine years old, very malleable, very 
uh, able to be influenced relatively easily from outside sources. Pretty good age actually to go through trauma, if I'm being honest about it. What I could not have recognized though at that point and until many years later is how fortunate I was to go through two incredible human beings. My mom and dad are just titans. They're tough, love-oriented. They're faithful human beings. They're the kinds who are going to hold you and just hold you even longer than you thought you needed to be held, but also the kind who will have courageous conversations with you. I'm, I'm going to share with you two quick ones if I can. So on day one of celebrating my life, coming home from hospital, they realize I can't hold anything. My sister, Amy, you've already heard about her in the story. She grabs a fork to scoop potatoes toward my mouth. Apparently, John O'Leary loved chicken and potatoes back then. So my mom <laughs> makes my favorite meal. My sister's about to feed me. And right before she does, my mother says, Amy, drop the fork. If John is hungry, he's going to feed himself. And I'll make a very long, painful story, much shorter and ultimately more redemptive. Two and a half hours after the dinner began, a little boy who had tears coming down his cheeks still, the dog had been well-fed because I flipped the plate three different times. My siblings are gone. The kitchen is clean. My dad is tucking the little ones in upstairs. But a little boy named John O'Leary has figured out how to sandwich a fork between his two hands and is bringing those potatoes that are now cold toward his mouth, chewing, looking with great hatred toward his mother. But the, the key piece in that story, he's eating. On day one, my mother is already teaching me an important lesson that it's not going to be easy, yeah. but it's possible. Like that, that is, gosh, man, we all need to learn that lesson in life. No, it's not easy. It's really hard. It's unfair so often. Life's going to be really difficult. If you're maybe struggling with Parkinson's, it might be harder tomorrow than it was yesterday. It's not easy. It may not be fair, but we can do it together. So she sat at my side that night. That's one thing I recognized from my mom. And now one thing she's getting back from me, but my dad, uh, he also was awesome. He also is awesome. And as I'm getting ready to go back to school about a year and a half after, after being burned, I'm just telling my dad, like, I can't go. I can't, I can't hold a pen, right? I can't unzip the bag easy. I kept saying, dad, why would God do this to me? Why me? It's unfair. I'm different physically. Like all these, every excuse in the world I gave my dad that night. And the way I began most of them was with the question, why me? <laughs> so my dad, who was a soft-spoken beautiful gent man just a great guy eventually stands up he's had enough he walks over to the bedroom door he shuts it but unfortunately he shuts it with himself still on the inside of my bedroom <laughs> so now he walks back over to me he kneels down in front of me he puts his hands relatively firmly on my thighs looks me in the eyes and says this is verbatim john damn it why not you why not you? This terrible thing has come your way in life. And if you want, you can be a victim to it for the rest of your life. And nobody ever will blame you for it. Nobody ever will blame you for it. You've been to the worst and you've come back from it. Or you can choose to be a victor. You can choose to rise up. And then every room we roll you into, or one day, John, we will teach you one day, as you walk into these rooms, people will look up to you in awe of what you've been through, what you've overcome, and what that means for them in their lives. And then he said, and this conversation took place 36 years ago, John, 
victim or victor. Your choice, not mine. And then with that, my dad, who is awesome, leans forward, kisses me on the forehead, stands up, walks out, opens the door, shuts it behind him, done for the night. I went to school the following day. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that lesson my dad taught me the day before I went back to school. This, this ability to recognize that life is so hard sometimes. And it's okay to ask the question, why me? But it's not okay to live there. It's not okay just to live buried in the rut of life. At some point, we get to determine how do we want to step into the days ahead. So your parents obviously quite formative for you, these very strong um, people with big personalities and a lot of wisdom and lessons to teach you in this early life during this very challenging time for you. Why don't you tell us then how Parkinson's came into their life and your life? Surprisingly, <laughs> right? I, I don't know if I'd ever heard the word Parkinson's disease growing up. And I remember even when, and I think I mentioned this to you on the podcast, when my father was diagnosed with it, none, none of us really knew what was going on. He was, he was ever so slightly dragging, I believe his left foot, you know, just, just a little bit. And it was the kind of thing where one of my sisters would give him some trouble just because he walked a little bit different than he had been walking previously. And then a doctor friend of him has said, you know, Denny, you should have that checked out because it could, it could be a few different things and some of them are serious. And so he did have it checked out and some of them were indeed very serious. And one of the things that we'd never heard of or even considered was Parkinson's disease. That ultimately was what it ended up being Parkinson's disease. So when my father was 46 years old, which is exactly the age I am as you and I are doing this podcast, a young man, I thought my dad was old when he was diagnosed. I was 16 or so. He was an old guy, 46. Couldn't believe he that long in the life, man. Well, now that I'm there, I realized, my gosh, that is so early. It's so young. We've got the diagnosis on a Thursday. I remember we parked at a church on Sunday the following, following week. We were walking up the steps into church. And my dad mentioned to, his, to a good buddy of ours that he was just diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And his friend said, smugly back, Parkinson's, huh? Everybody I know has been di diagnosed with Parkinson's disease has passed away. <laughs> so hey, I guess thanks. I, yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, I guess we'll walk into church now. Huh? You know, <laughs> hi, man, let's sing it out. God bless you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good day, brother. Peace. So that's how he responded to it. And we weren't sure how to respond to it. And for a long time, we did not need to worry about it. It was a diagnosis, but it wasn't something that influenced our days. But then relatively soon, it began to influence more of our days where my father worked, what he was able to earn, what he was able to drive and everything that happened thereafter. Has your dad ever said, why me as it pertains to Parkinson's? I've never heard him say it aloud. And I've offered him the opportunity of saying it to his son, who uh, he shares everything with. And uh, let me ask, let me frame that differently then. After my father lost his job, and after he lost his financial freedom, and after he lost the ability to drive, and after he lost the ability to run and walk, and struggled simply swallowing. So this is, this is pretty deep into the diagnosis. I said, Dad, why don't you ever complain about your diagnosis? It, it seems reasonable to ask the question, why me? Why don't you ever complain about it? 
And my father, who is the greatest man I know, said to me, John, why would I complain and ask why me when my life is so good? And this is a fellow who is wheelchair bound these days. And for those of us who might be in that position right now, or you're, you as a caretaker, you might find yourself with a loved one in that position right now. So I said to him, dad, could you give me three things you're grateful for because of Parkinson's disease? And maybe that's something all of our listeners could consider for a moment. Three things you're grateful for because of Parkinson's disease. So I, I had no idea, of course, what he might come back with. But the first thing he said, and I might get these out of order, but the first thing he said was, John, I'm grateful Grateful it was not a more serious diagnosis, which is shocking to a fellow who's broken every bone and is unable to work and is losing the ability to speak and swallow. I'm grateful it was not a more serious diagnosis. So that's how he views his Parkinson's disease diagnosis, apparently. The second thing he said is, I used to be so busy. Now I've got nothing but time to reflect on who I am, what matters most, and where God is in my story. What a gift. What a gift. And then the third thing he said was, John, I've always liked your mom. <laughs> I said, well, gosh, Chad, I'm glad you like mom. You married her 53 years ago, man. Uh, you know, you dated her in high school, you sicko. I'm glad you like my mom. And he said, uh, I think you're missing the point. I think you're missing the point. So many people in my life have pushed me away. Maybe maybe you both have experienced this. Maybe some of your listeners have experienced this. So many people have pushed me away. My coworkers no longer saw value in the work that I was able to do. So they they showed me the exit. My friends who used to come around for a round of golf or a round of beer, they seldom do either. Many people are seeing less value in who I am as a human being, less dignity in my days. Many people. But one keeps stepping closer and closer and closer. Your mother, my wife. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it, but I love her and I'm grateful for her. So at this point of the conversation, I'm a total train wreck. I'm an easy cry. You've, you guys have brought me <laughs> you I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> I'm, such a, I'm such a baby. So I cry all the time unapologetically. So I'm crying in front of my dad. I stand up to give him a big old hug, man. Oh, come on, dad. And right before I lock arms around my father, he says to me three words. John. He had a whisper that day, but I heard it loud, loudly. It's amazing what you can hear when you actually want to. He says to me, sit back down. I'm not done. I've got more. Mm. Sit back down. I'm not done. I've got more. And I won't remember everything my dad said, but let me just race you through quickly what I do. He talked about the time at home with his six kids, I'm one of them, 22 grandbabies. I got four. He talked about, <laughs> he said he's grateful for the handicap sticker. I don't know what things are like in Canada, <laughs> but too, down here in the States, man, he's got the flag hanging high. And he said, John, everywhere your mother takes me, it's like we're VIP, baby, rock stars. We park <laughs> up and close, red carpet is rolled out. Aren't we lucky? He I said- get that, yeah. <laughs> and he said he's grateful to see and hear and learn and laugh and love and live. And then he said, he's grateful for being healed, even if not cured, which is really freaking powerful because the prayer I keep offering for and with my dad is, is cure. Damn it. Like I want Parkinson's gone. I want it gone. 
But the prayer he keeps offering is one of healing for he, for my mom, this, this warrior that is just alongside of him every step along the way for his kids, for others, for society, not just about Parkinson's disease. That's part of it. But my dad's prayer is always around healing. And he wakes up every day in pain, moving toward becoming nonverbal, struggling, swallowing with a goofy grin on his face, healed. He got his answer, man. He's got, he's got his miracle. I think that's a really fascinating way to look at it, where it's the people who are moving through disease who are modeling how to heal mm. to the rest of the world, right? Or recovering from an accident or fire or or anybody who is is dealing with healing from trauma. You are modeling how to heal to the world and you're in the process healing the world simply because you're doing it out in the open and people can see you do it it's something very obvious and if you're sharing your story like you do like larry does you're showing people one way to go about it and then making it more normal and then um encouraging other people to find their own path of healing even though it may not be as obvious it's a really beautiful way to put that i'd never thought of it that way you you just put it that way and i agree with you that it was put that way beautifully by you that was succinctly generously and accurately summed up. You mentioned he's losing his voice. It was the biggest hangup that I had encountered with Parkinson's was the fear of losing my voice mm. because I've been in radio for so long and it's what I do best, what I'm known for. And yeah. there was a, there was a woman and I forget her name. I should, I should actually look it up again, but she, she had a 50 note range in her uh, singing voice and she woke up one day without a voice. And it was, there was some sort of, uh, disease that she was working through. And she was able to, through voice therapy, to get five notes back. And so she rewrote her whole, she rewrote all the songs and rewrote new songs to fit her new voice. And the, and the lesson that she was trying to put through was, no matter what happens, your heart is still your heart. And so you can communicate in a million different ways and the voice is just one of them. Yes. And most of our communication happens outside of the voice it's with our facial expressions it's with with the energy that we put forward it's with our intentions i'm no longer afraid of that and mm. so for me that was so revelatory and it, it actually it, it was a bit of a healing yeah larry first of all thank you and two little stories to tie into that one is jack buck was a radio announcer here in the states Hall of Fame, radio, football, hockey, NFL, like huge announcer who had a profound effect on my life in the hospital and then beyond. He also got Parkinson's disease, was diagnosed with it. And he, he talked about near the end of his life that he gave the St. Louis Cardinals the best years of his life. And now he looks forward to giving, giving them the worst years of his life, <laughs> which is super playful about losing his voice and being in radio and saying, you know what, this is who I am. This is how I show up unapologetically so great example to me and to his listeners. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to share. The second is this. So you're, you're talking to me today in our podcast studio. So I have a, a, a podcast like you as well. But when I'm not in the studio, I'm usually on the road speaking. And so outside of this little studio, we have our like pictures of John on the road speaking, like big auditoriums or some of them are in prisons. Uh, but my favorite picture is actually a picture of John O'Leary kneeling down next to his dad. 
dad's in his wheelchair. And then there's this group of people like down the line and then around the corner, then beyond the next corner, all lined up holding up copies of the books to have them signed, but they're not coming up to me. So you see this big goofy picture of me smiling because every single one of those jerks in that line don't want to meet me, the speaker who just gave the talk and wrote the book. They want to meet the guy who can't even say anything back. They want to meet my dad. So my friend, when the day comes and your voice becomes less than it is today, let it not be an excuse for you to not continue to show up because I think people, people don't tune in for our voice or how many notes we can sing, our vocal range, whether it's 50 or five or zero. There's something about the power of proximity and showing up with people who model courage and joy. And my dad has far more friends than I. It bothers me. I resent my dad for this. <laughs> far more friends than I do. And he doesn't say much to them, but they get a lot more from the conversations they have with my dad than they would ever get with me. It's the power of listening. It's, it's a lesson that I'm learning now is I don't have to fill the void. Because when you, you said it earlier, when, when you put your intention to listening, it's amazing what you can hear. I, I want to know how in the world you guys are having this conversation without just weeping. Like I, I'm, oh, I'm going to need yeah. a drink after this because I've been like emotional 36 different times. And here you are just stiff upper lips moving. Oh, no. Oh, was, no. This, this is my <laughs> Parkinson's face. I'm well, crying. It's true for you. This is holding it together. Yeah. <laughs> this is elation, by the way. I. <laughs> that's, that's accurate. Dad has the same look sometimes. How do you support your mother in this process as she cares for your father with Parkinson's? My dad struggles mightily with Parkinson's disease, and yet no one struggles more than his wife. No one, including my beautiful father, because every time dad breaks a femur, it's as if mom did too. Every time he's unable to speak, my, my mom is able to hear even less from her husband. Every time the dreams of what it might look like to play golf or tennis together in retirement, every time they even look out the window and see what that might have looked like, it was taken not only from one, but from both. And so their lives have been turned upside down. And when I went by their house yesterday to bring them lunch, they answered the door together. <laughs> they are like Batman and Robin and they just do <laughs> almost every, I don't know which one's which, who wears the black tights and who wears the orange in this family anymore, but they are so unified to overcome, live through and heal through Parkinson's disease as one, which is why they are the people that all my friends look up to, why all their friends look up to them, why their neighbors look up to them because they have what everybody else is longing for, this united front in life. So you ask, how do I support my mom? Well, the best thing I can do for her is to show up with and for her, literally, figuratively, and financially. It, it is all these things. Um, mom loves nothing more than her husband, but if she did love anything more than her husband, it is time away from her husband. <laughs> and I think she, I think mom and dad will listen to this show and they'll, they'll, they'll hear that and they will agree to it. Time away is sacred because it makes the time when they come back together even more special. So to give mom that opportunity, she's got a girls weekend coming up in two weekends. Jim and I, my, my brother and I will be at their house while mom's gone. Like what a gift to mom to be out with four of her daughters. I don't even know where they're going. 
they could be going two doors down and it would be the vacation of a lifetime. <laughs> I don't have a clue where they're going. All I know is in two weekends, I get to spend Thursday, Friday and Saturday night with my dad, which is also a gift for me. So like, it's, it's like this awesome win-win thing. So giving, giving my mom time away, supporting them with a caretaker, not named spouse. So recently we recognized, wow, mom, mom does a lot. I don't know what took us so long to figure that out. And in fact, let me tell you what took us so long. It wasn't until my mom went away on a, on a re weekend retreat that I recognized, how does she do this? I am in my mid forties. I'm an active guy. And I've never been more tired since I was raising newborns than I'm, I am with my dad right now this weekend. I've never been so tired. And here this woman comes back with fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis and high cholesterol in her mid seventies. And I expect, and my siblings expect, well, she'll get it done. That's what they do. They, that's what they've always done. And it was that experience and the compassion that came from that experience that we recognized mom needs help and she needs a lot of it. So we got a, a caregiver to come in twice a week, not three times a week. We had a, someone to come in who helps her clean the house. We come by as siblings far more often with food and with time. We gave mom a, a weekend away and we we're going to continue to give them weekends away. I'm sorry to give you a long-winded answer, but it, it required the compassion of experience and how difficult her life is for us to finally raise our hands and say, mom and dad, we want to do more for both of you. It can be difficult for care partners to speak up from my own experience and then from the care partners that I speak with. It's especially if it's a if it's your partner, because that was part of the agreement is that you take care of each other if you get sick. And so if you if you admit, I say that with air quotes, that you are burnt out or that there are things that you aren't comfortable doing or that you just don't have the energy or the health anymore to be able to do all of it. It, it can feel like you are admitting a weakness or that a lack of commitment to your spouse. And so I think that's why a lot of people hold off to that. Of course, none of that is true. Strength comes in, in many, many forms and asking for help can be one of the bravest things that anybody ever does. So the fact that she didn't, that she was uncomfortable asking is not surprising. Um, and then your, but what I, what I think is remarkable and beautiful is that you were able to recognize that she needed the care and then go above and beyond and make sure that it, she got the hap, she got the help that she needed. We, we viewed almost like a beachhead. Like we, we've landed some troops and now we're trying to land a few more and then we got to get a few more and then, and then we're going to ultimately win this war together. But mom and dad, you know, as you listen to the first half of the podcast, you'll hear what allowed them to guide a little boy from utter certain defeat. Fire, 100% of his body burned, amputations, wheelchair and ability to go back to school, victim for the rest of his life, undoubtedly. These things are just facts. Ultimately into a little, a young man who can play the piano and go to school and go into college and start a business and get married and have a, a nice, healthy life thereafter. That resiliency they modeled is the same thing that they used when Parkinson's disease arrived into their lives that allowed them to have 30 great years in spite of it. And it allowed them to cover up a whole lot of the struggles that they need help with financial, preparing food, helping dad in the, in the restroom, getting onto one floor, all these things that they somehow just did because they're just that tough. Well, 
yeah, and like that, now it's okay to ask for help and receive it. One of the beautiful things she said a, a moment ago is courage takes on many forms. Sometimes it takes on the form of asking for help. And so for some of your listeners today who are trying to show great courage, raise your hand. It's not weakness, it's strength to say, you know what, I could use some help over here. Parkinson's happens to the whole family when you're diagnosed. It's not just my diagnosis, it's Beck's diagnosis, it's Henry's diagnosis, her son and my family and your family. Like, How has your Parkinson's through your dad impacted your uh, understanding uh, of Parkinson's? I had never heard really of Parkinson's disease. Janet, Janet Reno had not yet been diagnosed with it. Michael J. Fox had not yet been diagnosed with it. You had not yet been diagnosed with it. So I had never heard of it. And then we had as a family, but now it opens up my heart, not only to those who've struggled with Parkinson's disease and their families that struggle with it, but man, when I see someone, when I see it, I'll be give you an honest answer. When I see someone going through an airport who is sight impaired and you see them with the, seeing Kane walking in front of them or maybe a dog to their side, guiding them forward. I walk up to them and say, listen, you may not want my help. You may not need my help, but I want to extend my hand. Can I, can I walk with you? And sometimes they'll say, no, get, get out of here. creep." <laughs> but usually, usually they'll say, yeah, thanks, man. And not only that, not only is it like, well, how quickly can I get them to the car so I can get on with my life? Almost always it just stirs conversation like really cool, healthy conversation. And so, yeah, burned, my scars may look different than yours and yours may look different than mine. And yet the more you you recognize that it's the brokenness that brings us together, that what seems most personal is also ultimately most universal, that that's when we can ultimately come together as the human family. So Parkinson's disease has been a mighty weight and struggle in our lives, full stop. And Parkinson's disease has been a mighty gift and a blessing in our lives, no doubt, full stop. How does the Parkinson's affect the relationship with you and your larger family? Again, massively. I think it's it's just not part of the DNA. So I'll answer that in two ways. And if you want clarification on either, have at it. One time they were talking about foreign languages in school. And, uh, you know, some families come from Spain and the, or Italy, and you might speak Italian at the dinner table. So one of my kids talked about how we speak, and they got the term so wrong. But ultimately, they said, Parkinson's is what we speak at home. They, they thought dad, grandpa, they thought they call him Gramps. They thought Gamps spoke Parkinson's. They did not know it was English. They just assumed it was his, his language. <laughs> was, you know, maybe he's from Canada. It's not quite English. Parkinson's <laughs> coming down here, man. They talk about hockey a lot more. It's Parkinson's up. They, he had no idea that it was, uh, no, that's not his language. That's a diagnosis he received, Jack. So uh, th- that's one thing. Secondarily, uh recently, like within a year, we were talking at the dinner table about Gramps and just what an awesome guy he was. And then I, I made the reference because uh, we, we were talking about also playing sports and how Gramps used to love to throw the football. And they said, uh, he can throw the football in the wheelchair. And I said, oh, gosh, you guys, Gramps and I used to play tackle football together. And they said, how did he do that in the wheelchair? And I said, you guys, Gramps wasn't always in a wheelchair. <laughs> and they were like, you know, mind. <laughs> what do you mean? Like they, they came to recognize this man in front of them as always being a fellow who had been stationed in a wheelchair. And I was able to share with them. No, 
that was not always his plight in life. But but here's the cool thing. <laughs> um, my mom, who, who was again my hero, uh, she came into the basement one time. I, I had the kids over there just to play with with their, their grandparents. I, I think that's a really good experience for the grandparents, but also for the grandkids to spend time together. So we're in the basement. We'd already play with Gramps. Now Gigi comes in and it's her birthday. So Gigi comes to the top of the steps, looks down. I'm down there. The kids are all down there. And she says to them, it's Gigi's birthday. Do you have anything to say to me? <laughs> And then Patrick, my second born says, yeah, where's Gamps? Because like, yeah, they love Gigi, but Gamps, grandpa is like their guy. They just are, they're lit up. They are on fire with Gramps. So for those of you who have received a diagnosis of Parkinson's or for a care partner of that person, and you're worried, how will this influence my kids or the next generation? What I will say to you is, um, positively, it, it, and, and without a doubt, it will influence them. There will be profound challenges without a doubt. And those who come behind you and those who come alongside of you will be absolutely on fire in love with the ones who, uh, who received the diagnosis. Nothing brings my little ones and now my siblings' kids more joy than being with their gamps, being with their grandpa sitting on his lap. So they don't play tackle football, but they get to experience love from grandpa. That's great. That's great. You, you, you're, you're, uh, I don't know what to call it. Is it an empire yet? Live inspired? Is it <laughs> cottage? It is a cottage hut. So yeah, I don't know if I'd call it an empire, but it, Hey, listen, we're, we're after it because in a time that is so divisive and so negative and so cutthroat. And so uh, I want to win at your loss. We're trying to draw people together, have conversations on life and life more abundant and uh, how we can do this thing even better together. So yeah, it's not an empire, but I hope it becomes one and I hope we give it all away at the end of it. So the, I think the question I have for you as you're talking to somebody like me with Parkinson's and back who, who's got my Parkinson's and <laughs> anybody going through um, a chronic disease, what, 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 do you, what do you share with them to help let them live an inspired life? The first always is, is not like uh, when life gives you lemon, lemons, make lemonade. Not yet. We'll, we'll get to the lemonade recipe and we'll get to add a little bit of water and then find the sugar and grab a big long spoon and stir, serve over ice. Like I get that. But, but it's okay also to squeeze a little bit of that lemon or Parkinson's in the eye. And it's okay to cry. And it's okay to clench your fist and be mad and punch some holes in drywall. It's Okay. It's okay for the faithful folks out there to say, God, where are you in this mess? It's okay to wrestle for a while. It's okay to uh, say, honey, we're going to figure this out and then go outside of the car and cry. Uh, these are all things we did as a family. It's all things that I still do as a leader in life. So if, I, if you were to say, John, we got a few listeners who may have received a diagnosis that is unwanted in their life. What would you say to them? Get mad about it first and grieve. This diagnosis is not only going to cause some great challenges, it is going to take away some of the dreams you had. And that's okay to be sad about. It. It's okay to be mad about. It. It's okay to wrestle. Again, for the faithful folks out there, it's okay to wrestle with God about. It. It's okay. And I would get on my knees with them and I would love them. And I would say to them words my dad shared with me when I was a little boy wrestling with God too, wondering why me. John, 
for the rest of your life, you can choose to be a victim to this diagnosis, this diagnosis of going through life with scars and in a wheelchair and without fingers and being stared at in every room. And John, if you want to do it, have at it. I won't blame you. In fact, I'll, I'll grieve it with you. I'll be a victim to it with you. That's how much my dad loved me. I'll do it with you. But he also gave me the choice, the same choice you give your audience when life gives you Parkinson's, the choice to rise up. Sometimes that means sitting back down in the wheelchair. Sometimes it means raising your hand and asking for help. But I would, would remind all of us, including your guest today, John O'Leary of the ability, this gift of human free will to choose how we want to navigate the life we have in front of us. It may not at all be like, like, like the life we had planned before the, the diagnosis, but what I learned from my dad and his care partner, his beautiful wife, is it might even be better than the one we planned. My life is so full of purpose now. Um, and I realize what I've been training for all this time, where you know you go through life wondering what, what impact can you make on people's lives? Mm. And then one day, opportunity meets preparation. I would ask you, if you were back in your nine-year-old self, would you go back into the garage? <laughs> what, a, what a great way to turn the tables. So, so let me just say this. Both of you are uniquely positioned for the work that you are now doing. And I think the numbers speak to that. And the response you've received from other listeners speaks to that truth. So you, you tragically, painfully, and brilliantly been put in position to now elevate this and serve others. And to your credit, you've accepted that mantle. So I... I I look up to you both. Congratulations on saying yes. To your question, if you could go back in time and uh, change things, John, for yourself, would you do it? I, I was asked a question when I was speaking in, in, uh, in China to a Canadian group of, of, I think they were real estate agents or maybe travel agents. And one of the guys in the room said, hey, mate, if you could go back in time and do it again and blow off the flame, would you do it? And the answer, because that was the first time I'd ever been asked that question. The answer I gave him was, mate, I want to change a thing. I said, if I went back in time and blew out the flame, I would also blow out the fact that you and I are doing life together right now, that I've been blessed to travel the world as a speaker, that I was blessed to uh, ultimately choose the college that I went to because it had, it had to be kind of close to home so I could be close to mom and dad. But, but that also led to a chance encounter with a brunette named Elizabeth Grace, who eventually would whisper back the words, I do, on our wedding day, and give me four kids and teach me about faithfulness and teach me about real beauty, not just physical, but character beauty. So the, the, the best of my life today, spiritually, physically, in life is the result of that explosion. So uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I still deal with a lot of pain and difference than everybody else in life. But I deal with that from a perspective of profound gratitude. It, it has led me into the Gifford family. It led me onto this podcast. And afterwards, it's going to lead me through the carpool line to pick up four little kids and do life with them tonight. What a gift. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. That's great. Well, it's, we really appreciate the, the time you've spent with us and, and, and for, for doing what you're doing. You know, I'm big, we're both big fans of sharing your story. And that's not only healing, but it's educational. And it, you take the stigma out of so much and you give people hope. Well, when you need hope yourself, just uh, listen back to this podcast, turn off the O'Leary audio part. <laughs> listen to the two of you banter back and forth because you'll find it in spades. So you, you are models of it and it will become hard. 
it will become very hard. And yet, without a doubt, you are positioned uniquely to weather the storm and to do so with profound joy in your hearts. And what an attractive couple you both already are, but what an attractive and incredible couple you will become together. See, honey, the best is yet to come. As hard as that is to imagine on some days, there is a whole lot of me that wants that to be true. Me too, honey bear. I love you. I love you too. Our sincere gratitude to John O'Leary for sharing his stories, wisdom, and time with us today. We'll link to his books, website, podcast, and social media handles on the show notes to this episode. You've been listening to When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Story producer is Dila Velasquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, where people with Parkinson's are at the center of everything they do. Parkinson Canada funds critical research, provides information and support, increases awareness, and advocates for improved healthcare outcomes for people with Parkinson's across Canada. Learn more at parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress, July 4th through 7th, 2023 in Barcelona, Spain. Go to WPC2023.org right now. Abstract submissions are open, registration open, housing open, travel grants, applications now open. PD Avengers. A global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners, and friends united to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. We need you. Join now at pdavengers.com. The Michael J. Fox Foundation's Parkinson's IQ Plus You free in-person live events. Coming in November to the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Tri-State area, and the Bay Area in December, it's designed to empower people with Parkinson's and their partners to manage the disease and learn about the latest research. It's free. Sign up today at michaeljfox.org slash pdiq. Spotlight YOPD, one of the only organizations in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. Spotlight YOPD.org. We would really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and if you'd share it with someone. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and more importantly, raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.